It's the 8th of August, 2019, and this is episode 411 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here. We recently returned from the blockchain training conference where aside from teaching classes and doing a couple of live shows, we set up a Let's Talk Bitcoin table where I camped out for two of the three days and interviewed about a dozen people. Some new to cryptocurrency and some who have been around for longer than I have. We end today's show with one of those folks, Davi Barker of Bitcoin Not Bombs, which as far as I can tell was the original cryptocurrency charitable movement. We talk Bitcoin, consensus, and interstellar piracy. Before that, we'll talk with Darren, a longtime impassioned miner who shares his lessons learned and more. In our second segment, we'll sit down with longtime Bitcoin developer Jameson Lobb, who narrates his journey through cryptocurrency and the biggest things which have changed for him as time has gone on. But first, we hear from Trixie, a newer user and the first of a surprisingly large group of passionate cryptocurrency educators in training, who I frequently met at this recent event. Big thanks to Edge.app for sponsoring this episode and the Blockchain Training Conference for putting on such a great event. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. My name is Adam B. Levine. Today I'm here with Trixie Hunter-Merrill at the Blockchain Training Conference in beautiful Aurora, Colorado. Trixie, how are you today? I am fabulous. How are you, Adam? I am pretty good. Today, the purpose of these interviews that we're doing really is to try and figure out kind of what are people interested in when it comes to cryptocurrency for kind of the newer users. Because we've been doing the Let's Talk Bitcoin show since early 2013, and we've kind of seen wave after wave of new people come in. And there's always kind of been this progression, but it's different every time. And so I, I just kind of, we're doing a series of these interviews. You're the first person we're talking to, so I really have no preconceptions. Tell me about your story getting into cryptocurrency. Why are you interested in this? What parts of it are appealing to you? What are you looking for? Well, I actually, I am fighting cancer. And while I was in the hospital, my husband is a geek and true of nature. He wanted something to talk to me about. So he started talking to me about Bitcoin. He had a captive audience. And I started listening and saying, wow, I'm really interested in this. What are we doing with this in our family? We're still kind of newlyweds, only married since 2015. And he was telling me what he was doing for himself and then how he wanted to invest in cryptocurrency for investments for my future. I'm 11 years older than him. And so he wanted to start putting away. And I got really interested in it from that perspective. And then as a business entrepreneur, I started thinking about how else could I utilize this Bitcoin, this blockchain that my husband was telling me all about for my business. Mm -hmm. And I'm an author and a speaker, and I wanted to start learning how to utilize it in that space, how to use it for real world applications. And also I thought it was cool being a female because as a geek, there aren't always a lot of females into the techie side. There's starting to be more women in tech and I like being one of those women in tech. Yeah, this conference seems like it has a little bit more of a female presence, but we're still talking about maybe 10% of overall attendees. So it still is a very male-dominated space, especially at a conference like this. Now, you mentioned on the entrepreneurial side, you're kind of interested in learning all of these things. Are these things that you've already learned, or are you here at this conference to learn those? A little bit of both. So I understand exchanges. I understand Coinbase Pro. I'm starting to learn Electrum. I have a Trezor. I actually manage my own Trezor. So I'm learning bits 
bits and pieces as I go along, but I want to learn more. I want to apply this to my website. How can I utilize this when I do a webinar? How can people pay for these webinars via Bitcoin mm -hmm. instead of just giving their PayPal or giving their credit card? I also do speaking events. And sadly, when you do speaking events, sometimes people pay with PayPal, but then they go back to PayPal and say, oh, I didn't do that purchase. And they pull it back. Mm -hmm. Here's what I love mm -hmm. as somebody in the Bitcoin world. They can't do that. Mm -hmm. When they pay for that via Bitcoin, it's going to be a lot harder for them to do. Now, maybe that's part of the learning curve, but the way I understand it is that they can't pull back that payment. And so that's really important to me. Well, you're totally right on. And that's, again, that's an interesting feature to focus on, but I guess it's informed by your experience being on kind of the other side of the chargeback issue and saying, oh, I wish there was a better way. And actually this kind of provides that really right. across the cryptocurrency spectrum broadly. Where kind of, where does your interest lie? If there's any place specific, is it Bitcoin? Is it something else? What's really caught your attention? Well, I love uh, actually the Lightning Network uh -huh. and BitRefill. My uh -huh. husband uh, told me about BitRefill and started asking me if I was interested in any of these gift cards that they have. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, yeah, I go to Panera all the time. BitRefill happens to have a Panera card, and we can utilize our Bitcoin. So we're of the mentality in our home of the buy and spend, you know, mm -hmm. not just buy it and hold it kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. And so in that buying spending world, we started using BitRefill. And once I started learning the aspect of, well, how does this work? Well, this is different. It's on a lightning network. And so that's one thing that I'm really interested in today is how does this lightning network work and how does that happen? My husband has told me a little bit, but you know, he is somebody who's a user, not somebody who's teaching and training. Sure. And so he's only teaching me, of course, his conceptology as well. Uh, so I'm curious, are you interested in the same elements of cryptocurrency or of Bitcoin that your husband is interested in? Or are, is it kind of like you learn from him, but now there's kind of a different flavor of interest moving forward? Oh, yes. It's completely different because he's a coder. So he loves doing applications. We mined for a while. So I learned a little bit of the mining world. And he loves it from the application side. He's an application systems engineer, a coder. He's doing different apps, uh, doing things in the open source network. So he's here on the technical track mm -hmm. to learn more of the coding side. And that's more of interest to him. Mine is more on the surface level. I just want to learn more of the basics so that I can teach other people. I have a YouTube, and I call myself the Bitcoin Femme Fatale, mm -hmm. and I'm starting to do a little bit more YouTubes out there, and I want people to see from a newbie my learning so that way they can learn as well. So they can see, hi, I'm new to this space too. I'm not someone who's been in this world for 10 years or 20 plus years. I was not an early adopter. I didn't even understand it way back when. So now I'm reaching out to other people who are saying in my world, well, I don't get this. I don't understand. This is fake money is what my friends tell me. Uh -huh. And I say, well, you know what? I was able to buy something online and utilize it. You can use Bitcoin on overstock.com. And you know, from the girl perspective who likes to shop, that made me even happier. I don't have to use my credit card. I don't have to use my PayPal. I'm using something that's solid and secure. So I want to teach other women and other people how to utilize it in their life as well. So I'm more on the newbie track, learning the basic track here at the Bitcoin conference to gain more knowledge and grasp more understanding. And then I feel like I'm of the caliber that I could take the uh, training, the CBP for the Certified Bitcoin Professional. I really want to take that because I want to become one of those people. I want people that are in my world to be able to look at me and say, oh, you're not just just a newbie, but you have enough 
enough knowledge that you can teach us and start listening to me because I think that in the newbie world, we need to have someone to get us started. And, you know, like today, being the first person, if that's the first person in my tribe, hey, that's okay. I'll take that. So you're an early adopter within your tribe. Let me ask, have you, is this a new role for you, being kind of an early adopter and somebody who uh, perhaps is involved with this type of technology or, or new opportunities and things like that sort of before the rest of your group? Or is this a new thing or is this like a kind of repeating phenomenon in your life? No, it's relatively new in some aspects. I've been an early adopter of other things. I'm not afraid to be an entrepreneur. I was the first to call myself a portfolio entrepreneur, and I call myself that because I have four little businesses that I manage. I'm the founder. I'm the CEO. So I'm kind of the person that is the first person to say, hey, this is the way we're going to do it, or this is what I call myself. And that being the Bitcoin femme fatale, everyone said, that's really different. Why would you say that? And I said, well, because think of a femme fatale. You know, they're not afraid to be out there and daring. Right. And I'm not afraid to be out there and daring in this Bitcoin world. And if that means I have to be the first one to start it off, maybe the rest of you will follow. So it's been kind of new in my world in the last few years of being a leader in the industry in anything that I'm doing versus a follower. And I like being that leader mentality. And if that means being a leader in the Bitcoin world, hey, more power to it. Hey folks, this is Adam B. Levine. I'm here again at the Blockchain Training Conference in Aurora, Colorado. Right now I'm joined by Jameson Lopp, longtime Bitcoin developer and CTO of Casa. Jameson, how are you? Hey, I've been busy, but uh, <laughs> always been busy, I guess. So this series of interviews, we're primarily talking to people who have either been around for a long time, which you fall into the category of, and really what we're looking for here are kind of differences in your perspective, things that things that you've learned, things that you think are important now that perhaps you didn't think were important a couple of years ago, or the other way, things that you don't think are important now that perhaps you did think were important a couple of years ago. What do you think? Definitely, we've seen changes because the community has grown, which has brought in a uh, much larger variety of perspectives. You can probably break up the history of Bitcoin into a, a number of various phases where the, the first couple of years were just the really super nerdy cypherpunks who were happy to work on a, yet another project that was probably doomed to fail, but they wanted to try anyways. Uh, and then, of course, as the Silk Road came online and, and we started seeing like an actual use case for the technology... That's when you started seeing like the anarchists, the libertarians, the folks who really were looking for some sort of stateless censorship resistant money. And, you know, that was all good and well for a few years. And then right around the time when I started getting into working in Bitcoin full time, that's when like venture capitalists in Silicon Valley started coming in. And, you know, that's when a lot of new perspectives of like, how can we try to use and evolve the technology started coming into the sector, which resulted in a lot of contention, of course, clashes of different uh, ideals and perspectives. That's kind of interesting. I tend to think about those early stages as kind of one stage, but you're sort of spacing it out a little bit more. You know, one of the differentiating factors between the newer period versus that older period, do you think the drug users or the people who are interested in that more illicit side, was there any desire by them to change the protocol or to do anything with the protocol, or were they just kind of showing up and happy to use it? No, they were just happy to have that utility. And it's been funny uh, speaking to people over the years who were in that early adopter section 
and all of the anguish that they have right. of smoking away or snorting away millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. <laughs> I myself only ever, you know, browsed Silk Road as an interesting oddity, but my paranoia never allowed me to actually try to get anything shipped to me because I always felt like the postal system was not A little secure. bit of a weakness. Yeah. A little bit of a problem with that whole thing. Good from a decentralized can't take down the marketplace perspective, bad from an individual not going to get caught in some sort of crazy honeypot perspective. Yeah, I'm actually kind of surprised that no one has really tried to innovate more on the darknet market side, but I guess it just works well enough. It seems like it. It seems like, you know, the people who want that type of solution, the solutions that are out there, it's a competing kind of vibrant market. And perhaps it might not, I mean, like, if anything, Silk Road was a real point of centralization in that very decentralized area. And after it went away, we didn't see another kind of, you know, monolithic one come up. We saw it turn into a marketplace where there was real competition. With regards to the kind of later stages, you know, so what you're saying is that when the VCs came in, they were like, aha, this is a good starting point, but there's much more that we can do with this that would be much more useful for our purposes. What kinds yeah. of things do you think that was? Well, I would characterize it as uh, throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks. <laughs> sure. um, you know, that is, we definitely saw that during like the 2017 ICO boom where anybody who had a half-baked idea could raise millions of dollars. Anybody who had a half-baked idea and no regard for the law could raise a half million dollars. And a white dollars. paper. You and had a white to have paper. a well, white paper. Yeah, you had to have a white paper. But towards the end of it, there were shops that would just pump you out a white paper real quick. Yeah, yeah. So, you know... I'm a technology guy, and from a technology perspective, I see Bitcoin and the underlying blockchain as a sound audit log. So, yeah, I mean, it is a new type of database. It is, it is the least efficient database that I've ever come across in my entire career. And so you have to be very judicious about how you try to use this type of data structure. And um, the vast majority of use cases that people have tried to apply to it just didn't make sense to me due to the inefficiencies involved. But, um, you know, there are certain cases where there's so much value that you can get from having uh, strong auditability or uh, strong guarantees against data being changed that the inefficiencies of the technology can make up for it. Do you think that those inefficiencies are inherent to something like Bitcoin and there are other blockchains that might solve those things? Yeah, so really the result of many years of scaling debates in Bitcoin led me to understand that this is not just a technological argument. This is not a technical scaling argument in and of itself because quote-unquote scaling can be viewed in different ways to different people based upon what you're willing to trade off for that scale. And so as a result, we've seen uh, the entire gamut of uh, trade-offs, even just within Bitcoin and the 50 plus forks of Bitcoin. You know, the original Bitcoin being the most conservative and being tolerant of potentially high transaction fees and long wait times for confirmation because the prioritization was around keeping that cost of validation low all the way to the other end of like Bitcoin SV going ultimately for like gigabyte style blocks that almost nobody is going to be able to actually validate themselves because they're fine with a world that is only run by like a small federation of enterprises. From a scaling perspective, while I definitely appreciate kind of the layer two approaches, 
I mean, do you think that that other approach is fundamentally doomed to failure just because of the way that blockchains function? You, you mentioned that they're kind of the most inefficient database possible, but at the same time, they have the characteristic of being the only database that you can't stop in terms of shutting down centralized participants or data centers or things like that, in theory at least. Well, that's where you get into this gray area where a number of things are not quantifiable. It's, it's, it's not really possible to quantify you know, centralization or censorship resistance because it is such a uh, multivariate uh, set of spectrums. Ultimately, I think you end up seeing people go to the extreme of one way or another um, rather than trying to find some sort of middle ground. You know, either your, your priorities are around making a system that is accessible to as many people as possible to do one thing, or you're making a system that's accessible to as many people as possible to do another thing. And that may be, you know, running a node, that may be doing cheap transactions, that may be embedding data into some distributed database. It seems like that perspective kind of naturally leads to blockchains will become a hyper-specialized thing that will specialize into the thing that they're really good at and prioritizing above everything else, but that given that there is not a limit to the number of these that we could see, we should see functional versions of anything that can be functional simply because it, it can be done. Yeah, I mean, I think that specialization makes a lot more sense. You know, that's why, like, even with Ethereum of trying to be like the world computer and try to be everything to everyone... It seems inevitable even over the years that we have seen specific things take off in Ethereum, specific use cases, and that is kind of a, a natural result of these protocols and networks evolving and kind of finding themselves. Um, it's also the communities that are backing the protocols finding themselves. Sometimes that's more along the technical path, but in many cases it's more... I think based upon ideology and like whatever is most interesting to the people that have been using and supporting a given network in the first place. So turning quickly to Casa, what was kind of the most surprising thing that you found building Casa? Because Casa is a full node, basically plug and play product, right? Well, we have a variety of services at Casa. The first one that we started on, which really got me interested into working there, was the Keymaster product. So basically a three of five multi-signature setup where it's using off-the-shelf hardware like Trezors and Ledgers and creating an extremely robust multi-device, multi-geographic location setup for people's keys so that they can basically have the easiest use, but also highest security, most robust setup as possible. It's, you know, getting people to be able to have something that's like Glacier Protocol level security, but with a, you know, mobile app level usability. And so that has been fun to work on for a few years, uh, getting a lot of good feedback from people. But then what we've been doing is really expanding what I would kind of classify as our self-sovereignty kit. And so the, the first thing was, you know, helping people be more sovereign over their private keys. The next thing is being more sovereign over your actual validation of the money that you're receiving and holding. So as a result, we create a node product that is as plug and play as possible so that people can use both Bitcoin and Lightning with very user-friendly web and mobile interfaces. And then the next step that we've just come out with in the past few weeks is the SATS app, 
which is a more user-friendly and social uh, Lightning Network wallet. But each of these things in and of themselves is kind of neat, but we're building them in a way that they are meant to all integrate with each other. And when you can integrate them with each other, it becomes even more powerful and uh, more user-friendly. Well, so let's kind of zip ahead real quick. Two to five years out, who's the Casa product for and what are they using it for? Like what's kind of the eventual goal, if you have one, in terms of features you want to deliver? Yeah, so the long-term goal in our mantra in general is improving people's self-sovereignty. Basically, helping people help themselves because... While you know, Bitcoin has always promised to help people be their own bank, it's been really hard for people to actually do. Yeah. And so we want to lower the barrier of entry, lower the learning curve, and basically provide guide rails to users by baking the best practices into the software that we're providing. So like we said, you know, private keys, blockchain validation data, Lightning Network, we started with Bitcoin because Bitcoin was the most obvious, like, I would say lowest bar for us to hurdle over for people to become more sovereign. But being more sovereign unto yourself, while the financial side is a good start, there are so many other things in the world today that we are giving away to third parties, like specifically data in general. Um, identity is another thing that I think is very important. And... This is one reason why I think the proliferation of all of these blockchains and distributed networks and various protocols that are being experimented upon is a great thing to see because I want to get better solutions for people to be sovereign over many other aspects of their lives, not just the financial aspect. And as those things mature, we want to support them. We want to build them into our services and help people run whatever hardware or software they need so that they can take advantage of the protocols that are maturing. So looking ahead outside of CASA, you know, just at Bitcoin and cryptocurrency perhaps broadly, you know, what technologies are you really excited about? What things do you think are underappreciated right now? I'd take any of those answers. As we've seen, uh, you know, a variety of failures happen in this space, and we've seen this continual onslaught of privacy violations and leaks and um, really lack of trustworthiness shown by various organizations, I am interested in seeing options that actually like, make the internet itself more sound. So if we can find a way to perhaps bypass, perhaps just completely build on top of a new type of internet that is not reliant even upon being routed you know, through certain ISPs or being routed through certain large entities, you know, there's a variety of ways that may be accomplished, such as through mesh networks or through serverless architecture applications, which... You know, those may take advantage of blockchains. They may take advantage of distributed file storage systems. That is what I'm hoping that the culmination of all of this stuff will be is basically a restructuring of the Internet itself mm -hmm. in a way that makes it less controllable by third parties, that makes us not have to put as much trust and reliance on third parties for practically everything. But, you know... That is a huge undertaking that relies upon us re-architecting almost 
all of the assumptions that is currently built upon, such as identity, for example. And disintermediating all of the stakeholders, too, who benefit from the way that things are. Yeah, so definitely a lot of work to be done, <laughs> and, and that is why I think that this is still the very early days. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here for another sponsored minute with Paul from Edge.app, a non-custodial exchange to buy, sell, and trade cryptocurrency. Hi, Paul. Hey, Adam. Happy to announce today that we are really bringing the power of decentralized exchanges to the masses. As many people know, decentralized exchanges really provide the permissionless access to be able to exchange many different cryptocurrencies independent of a centralized third party making that decision for them. Today, we're announcing integration with Total. It's an API that allows Edge to connect to multiple independent decentralized exchanges or DEXs to provide liquidity for the currency pair that a user is wanting to swap. Not only does Edge connect to these decentralized exchanges through Total, but they actually connect to conventional exchange partners such as Changely and ChangeNow and Shapeshift, and it'll actually find the best price for the currency pair a user wants to swap in the amount that they want to swap, really folding these DEXs into the mix seamlessly with other centralized exchanges. So we're excited to hear what people have to say. Head on over to our website and give it a shot and send us your feedback. To get your hands on one of the most powerful yet user-friendly crypto apps out there, stop by edge.app today. Thanks a whole lot, Paul. Thanks much, Adam. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here with Darren. Darren, how are you? Doing great. So basically what we're doing in these interviews is we're talking to people who are new and people mm -hmm. who have been here for a while and trying to figure out kind of what was the past motivation, what's the current motivation, what are you excited about now, what are you thinking about now. You are not a new user, so we are talking about kind of your changes in perspective over time. That's right. I kind of got into the space near the end of 2012, um, just kind of stumbled into it. My career background is in software testing, so I happened to, you know, get into the gadgety stuff and everything, and when I started to see this Bitcoin thing bubbling up. I bought a little bit of it back then, and then I sold it, or not didn't sell it, I actually spent it right away. Um, not on anything illegal or anything mm -hmm. like that. But then I you know, found your show and started listening to Andreas Antonopoulos. And prior to all this, I had been looking at what's going on with the economy and the whole global financial system problem after 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. Through educating myself about all those things, I realized that there really isn't a way out of this. I was very convinced that there will be a collapse at some point. And, you know, it's almost impossible to even predict when, but I knew something was going to happen. I started exploring all the things that might possibly get you from before collapse to after collapse and rising from the ashes. And I it became quite depressing because I couldn't find anything, not mm -hmm. even precious metals. I mean, if you need to be adaptable, move around, you can't carry all this stuff around your store of value. When Bitcoin came along, I can't even, I think it was actually a video I was watching of Andreas when it clicked. I said, oh my God, this is the safety net. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, problem solved. Mm -hmm. And then I realized over time that it's going to take time. Right. And that this safety net is a long way down from where we're going to be falling from. And we need to build this net up higher, faster, have it be more robust. You know, I started learning things about scalability and all of that. You know, 2013 was a big learning experience. I guess 2013 to 2014 with Gox. Got Goxed. Well, <laughs> didn't really lose confidence. I believed in Bitcoin so much that the day that happened, 
I thought, well, I was at least smart enough to move my funds out of there about three to four weeks earlier because yeah. of what I learned from people like you and, you know, uh, Eric Voorhees. Mm. I mean, he, he put a tweet out that day. I can't remember it word for word, but I wish I could find it because I'd put it up on a wall. Mm-hmm. It was the most comforting thing I, I had heard right after the Gox situation mm-hmm. happened. And um, it taught me that what I already knew was going to be true is there gonna be, there's going to be pain on this path. Mm-hmm. And it was good. I feel very fortunate to go through some of those things because today, the last thing I want to talk about is price. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about what what we, that's truly the collective we, can do with this. The whole planet. I have to remind myself daily this is global, not just in the United States. But, you know, so you go through the elation and excitement at the beginning where you're curious, losing a lot of sleep, tumbling down that rabbit hole and just learning as much as you can. Then, you know, things like flat price happens. And this is back when I cared mm-hmm. about price. And you never really stopped caring a little bit about it. But, uh, you know, it, I became complacent with it all during the lulls in the kind of market activity and everything. Finally, moving on to like 2014 through 16, it was about, well, there's nothing going on there. Let's see what else is happening in the space. Mm-hmm. Ethereum starts to pop up. My little hobby with mining starts to take off. And so it became a really good way to um, stay involved in the space Mm -hmm. while doing something that was enjoyable, like just trying to configure machines to mine more efficiently. And and, uh, just kind of kept me on my toes and ready for now the the crazy excitement of 2017 where your phone starts ringing off the hook and from people you haven't heard from in years, they're saying, what should I do? What does this mean? What is it? I said, here's how to go learn about it. Go learn about it. That's Mm -hmm. what you need to do. So I, I've always been an advocate, but I very much over time shied away from even discussing price or sure. the word investment. I try to keep that out of the conversation and I guess uh, really just try to help people understand why it's important, not how it's going to be a get rich quick scheme. Well, I love your story. You're a man after my own heart. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's funny when, you know, listening to you guys back in the day and there's and there's so many people that have this same story. They're the ones that you see continue talking about it during the 2014-16 time frame. That's right. So I appreciate that history kind of coming up to the 2016-2017 period. I want to talk to you a little bit about mining, and I want to know kind of what changes have you gone through in the last two years in terms of perspective, things you used to think, maybe don't think anymore, maybe think something different, or are you basically kind of along the same lines as you were at that point? Well, when I got into the mining thing, it was something I understood and I knew how to do. And I thought, I can make this just profitable enough to support my external exploration, my, the exploration outside of the technical mining piece of it. It's just one part of the thing that makes all of Bitcoin work. So having a great appreciation for that, I wanted to be able to move outside of it and have <laughs> mining be the funding mechanism for that. Next lesson learned. Uh, you know, I'm not terrible well, So what was math. the lesson? <laughs> well, the lesson is that you can pour a lot of money into mining and, you know, depending on timing, and it was near the, it was in 2017, so we were very fortunate mm-hmm. at that time to be able to really acquire enough from the mining returns to scoot along for about another year. Mm-hmm. And, but it's really kind of ridiculous. If our first motivation was profit, we failed miserably <laughs> because we would have stopped mining much, much earlier. Yeah. But really, I felt like even though we were the small fish in the big sea, 
we were playing a part in the decentralization of the mining. Now, now that is that a important. hindsight observation, or is that an, at the time you realized that your best option was to move out, but you chose to stay in for reasons beyond the kind of profitability? Oh, yeah, we knew it at the time. Uh -huh. I, I actually had written some things into kind of a business plan that said, you know, why am I doing this? Uh -huh. It's one, because I believe in what Bitcoin is so much and and really and we can learn from the other cryptocurrencies so i will support them mm -hmm. too there's a lot of other ideas out there that are going to make the whole space better just having been there so i wanted to contribute to those things that was the first thing in the business plan second was be profitable enough to stay in business mm -hmm. and have just enough to maybe not have to work full time mm -hmm. maybe travel around a little bit and start to kind of build some momentum in the space with making enough connections that you can start helping other people that will in turn help you continue to be independent. You know, it's really funny. I hear that story a lot, and it's my story too, again. And it's just one of those things where, in my experience and in the conversations I typically have, it's because the resources are there. And the thought is that, well, the reason why I haven't been able to pull this off is because I haven't had the resources to do it. But with these resources, I could do it. And so therefore, I should do it because now it's possible. And that's my story. And that's a story of probably about 15 other people in the entrepreneurial at various stages from very, very large companies to very small companies. And it's almost universally always a mistake. You're right. Well, and part of it is is our own human condition. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you can have all, all but one piece of those resources right in front of you. And you fail to take the step because of fear or, or something like both that. sides. Or you'll use that one piece that's missing as the excuse for not just pushing forward. And I think that's where teams come in. That's where, you know, you can get teams of people together. And when we, when we do these Bitcoin meetups everywhere, we can kind of reinforce each other to push each other to do it. It's like do good for goodness sake type of thing, yeah. but it's easier said than done. Yeah, it's easier said than done, and I think that it might not even work. I think that's the other part about it that to me has really been shocking, is that making those choices that feel like the right choices from a moral perspective, a lot of times means you don't get to continue because you burn the resources at a time when it wasn't the right time to do it. You're yeah. absolutely right, and, it, and as you're even saying that, it makes me realize, I mean, what a great definition for money being the root of all evil you know, fiat money. I mean, sure. or really just money as we've come to know it. And that's why we need it to be different. And we know where we want to end up, roughly, and it's in a really good place. And I think maybe we just have this maybe overly optimistic idea of how we could get there. The incentives have to be lined up properly to get other people involved. And maybe they're not the same incentives that we have. Well, I think that's it. I think that it's in our incentives as fans of this technology who want to see it get adopted. We have tangible, intrinsic reasons why we want people to care and why it's important to educate people. But the only time I've ever actually seen that sort of education work is when the person is looking for it, right? They've yeah. already figured out that this is a question they want an answer to, and they're going for that. And again, it's something that's taken me six, seven years to learn at this point. And, and you've, you've discussed those struggles over time, I think, you know, and, and I... And I it's been a process. <laughs> oh, I know. It's always been so hard for me to to hear that, that you're suffering from those same things because I just don't want you to stop doing what you're doing and, and you know, teach their own and we all need to, you know, choose our own paths and everything. But I think it's a matter of aligning the incentives in a way that get other people involved.
I'm here today with Davi Barker, formerly of, formerly of, or still going on, Bitcoin Not Bombs? Bitcoin Not Bombs is still a decentralized aircraft. <laughs> um, it's grown into Pirates Without Borders. Okay, okay. Uh, which is sort of a response to the fork, I guess. Okay. Is there a little bit of a seasteading thing going on there? No, it's more like airsteading. Ah, got it. So air pirates, not your old-fashioned pirates. Okay. <laughs> so tell me about that. Sure. Sounds like you got a story here. So Bitcoin Not Bombs you know, has Bitcoin in the name. And so if Bitcoin is going to fork, it seems like we are obligated to somehow take its side or change our name to Bitcoin Cash dot whatever. We decided we didn't want to take a side. We don't believe in taking sides in that sense. It's more currencies for more people. Different people want different features. We want a free market in currencies. They can both exist and they both do. And I use both. So to some extent, Bitcoin Not Bombs has evolved. At least many of the participants moved over to PiratesWithoutBorders.com which is, right now, it's like a think tank. We call them black letters. They're like white letters, only they're not things we're developing. They're things we imagine sci-fi writers in the future will develop. And so it's sort of about defining what piracy means to us, like in a sort of seafaring pirate lingo, but we're really talking about cyber pirates okay. and potentially space pirates. Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a fun read. There's a lot of good stuff there. Okay, fair enough. So what is this, a forum? There is a forum. There's also like a 3D space of the ship. It's called the Precariat that you can tour. Um, people are starting to build avatars and things like that. There's different captains. I have my own ship. I'm actually not from the Precariat. Oh, that's great. My ship is called the Black Sail, S-A-L-E. Um, <laughs> I love it. Okay, so this is honestly not the way I expected this conversation to go. So it's, I've noticed this. There's a large number of people who, you know, either went with the Bitcoin cash side who were very, very big proponents of Bitcoin in the early days, especially when it was the digital cash use case, who kind of went with that. And it sounds like, again, like my perspective has always been the same as yours, it sounds like, which is that if it's a fork, then we all have it. So you have to like proactively divest yourself of something to not have a piece of it. Which you could do. Which you can do, but like, why is it in everybody's best interest to do that? It's in the best interest of, I guess, people who really want Bitcoin to succeed to the exclusion of anything else. But it doesn't seem like that's how stuff works. Seems like, again, like there's the 80-20 rule, right? Yeah. So if you want to get real, specifically the Bitcoin cryptocurrency space and what I'm up to, like I go to Porkfest. I still go to Porkfest. And I used both Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash there because people take both. And so I'm always of the opinion of what do you want? What kind of currency do you want more than anything? And if it's dollars, I'll give you dollars. But if it's silver, I'll give you silver. But, you know, the transaction fee on Bitcoin transaction was like 250 And the transaction fee on a Bitcoin Cash transaction for the same cup of coffee was less than a cent. And so that made more sense as cash in that market. But if you're a speculator, if you're an investor, if you're holding on to something for a long time and you want to play, you know, the arbitrage game, you have to look at the features. You have to decide where you're going to invest and when and what news you think is going to inform that decision. You know, I think people feel like you have to do that. <laughs> I felt like you had to do that for a long time. People should do that. It would be wise if people did that. Well, but here's the thing, though. Most of the people who I know who have the best stories of success are people who, like, completely did nothing, who, like... We're like, I'm just going to completely ignore all of this. And so there's that thought that we know what to do, so we have to make a choice. But that choice can be right or it can be wrong. And most of the time, it seems like taking action is actually a wrong choice relative to the kind of longer term of just doing nothing. Well, I've definitely done well with inaction. I mean, like, I'm not a day trader. I'm not an espionage, espionage? arbitrage person. Arbitrage, yeah. <laughs> espionage either, but arbitrage too. <laughs> uh I essentially take it as a payment system and I spend it when I can spend it with people that want it. And that's all I've really ever used cryptocurrency for. And 
I've done well. So you're like a cryptocurrency user in 20 years who figured it out 20 years early and started acting like that. Well, way here's early. the thing: is I was an, I was an anti-Federal Reserve silver bug before Bitcoin came about, and I was a sci-fi writer right around the time that Bitcoin came. So I was already writing about potential digital currencies and what features I thought they should have. But I had no idea how to code that. I just knew that I'd seen Star Trek, so computers can do things. Right. <laughs> and so what I always wanted was a currency. Like, the reason I got involved in Bitcoin in the first place was because I wanted an honest currency. And it is still that. And that is fundamentally what I see the value of it as. As high up as it wants to go, what that is is a measurement of the market value of an honest currency. So you mentioned the Federal Reserve. We're going through a somewhat interesting time right now in world history where the Bank of England's uh, head recently came out and talked about how the current financial system, basically with the U.S. dollar as the reserve, has basically failed. And we're kind of walking along after it's failed, not recognizing that it's failed, but that ultimately it's going to be something like Libra, which is specifically what he mentioned, that will solve this problem uh, and get us out of this situation. So, I mean, like... That's kind of been a core value proposition that I think advocates like ourselves for Bitcoin, you know, as a way, and Bitcoin not bombs itself is the idea that if you can't create this currency arbitrarily, it's much harder to conduct wars with it. Right. So they're going to essentially create a version of a cryptocurrency that... Well, that's what they're talking about yeah. right now. Whether they go forward with it, my point is, is that I can't think of a time in my lifetime where there's been an acknowledgement at the highest levels of power that the current system really has failed and is going to be replaced. I think that if you look at history, that's obvious, but that's not been the narrative at all. And we're starting to shift it. It's like they saw a parade and they're trying to get ahead of it. I know, right? So again, like as somebody who doesn't have any businesses that are, you know, like in the business of doing stuff with Bitcoin, again, you're just mostly here for the currency and the free money. Like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, so this, you were talking about what has changed in the last five years about my thinking. And this is a big one. This is the biggest one I could think of when you asked this question is at the beginning, I saw a core group of people that I saw all having the same sort of values and they found a piece of technology that could sort of implement those values and then they went out and promoted. And so now five years later the population of Bitcoin users has expanded much faster than we've successfully pushed the ideas that made it appealing to us. And so now I'm encountering people in the Bitcoin space who come at me with, I don't like these features. And I'm like, but that's the point. And so fundamentally, value currency economics is still nested in you know the subjective value of human beings. And we still live on a planet of human beings that want something completely different than we do. But what I'm still optimistic about is that we've proven that you can fork these things. We've proven that however big this community or these values take over the psychological, you know, headspace, we can grow to fill. Like we overgrew the technology before growing the ideas, but now the ideas have this like vast open space to grow. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by Edge.app and featured Adam, Trixie, Jameson Lop, Darren, and Davi Barker. This episode featured music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Today's show is produced by Crystal and edited by Steven. Incidentally, are you a reliable, capable audio editor who likes the Let's Talk Bitcoin show? I'm looking to expand the team I'm working with here and would love to hear from you. If you haven't already, visit ltbshow.com and subscribe to our new Let's Talk Bitcoin show only feed, which includes early episode releases and bonus content. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at ltbshow.com. We'll see you next time.